Now, we hit a sober note today in Romans, and all of a sudden, after that glorious 16 verses about this, this mini hall of faith, the greetings that Paul has given to all his friends and the faith, and all those, just that incredible variety of Christians, true True diversity, not the phony woke diversity, but the true diversity where these people who are slaves and freed and rich and poor and all these different ethnicities have been brought near in Jesus Christ. But now we hit a very sober note. And it's a warning for us. It's something to be on our guard. It's not merely a guard against uh, the warnings of the culture, but warnings within the church. Uh, where God is working the most, so Satan will send his false teachers and his minions. There is an old story, a fable. You may remember it from when you were a little kid. It was a fable about a, 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 it was an old German fable. It was called the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Now, this was a city in Germany or Eastern Europe back in 1200, at least how the story originated. And they were a city that was full of the scourge of rats. They had a major rat problem. So they advertised to see who would rid the city of these rats. And this man came, his name was the Pied Piper. And he said, I have the secret for getting rid of the rats. And he said, if I will get rid of the rats, here is what you must pay me. And so the mayor and the town agreed. Yes, if you would get rid of these rats, we'll pay you anything. And they agreed upon a price. And he took out a flute or a lute. And he began to play this melody. And he went around town and he began to play this beautiful melody, and he played it again and again, and one by one, the rats came out of hiding, and he, they followed him, and he started to walk, and he walked out of town, and he walked to the river, and he walked across the river, and all the rats went into the river as he played this melody, and they were drowned. Now, he went back to be paid, and the mayor and the town council refused. They cheated him. They were rid of their rats, and they said, well, he's not a threat to us. We don't need to pay him. He said, thanks for all your work. See ya. And he promised them, you will regret this. And a short time later, after he had left, after he had warned them, he came back. While all the adults were in some sort of meeting, it may have been church, and he went and he played this beautiful sound. And he had already trained the people to love the sound. And you saw this time the rats were gone, but all the children came out of their homes. And he walked away from the city, and all the children followed. He had lured them away, and they were never seen again. Of course, very sobering tale, one of those grim tales. But it was a fable to make the point. One, we must not be deceitful and dishonest and shirk our duties. And second, there are those who would seek to lure people away. There are those who would seek to do damage to the people of God, to the children of God. So to this end, a sober passage today, but a passage that will end with great hope and great confidence. Watch out for false teachers. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is page 1130, left-hand column, verse 17, little number 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Here a final warning. In fact, Paul doesn't just say it's a warning. It's an appeal. It's a plea. Watch. We are to watch the trends of the church or the trends of the world. All those false religions, whether they are some form of wokeism or statism or any number of other isms that would come against the church and threaten to give false assurance and to draw God's people away. Often in evangelism, we have to deal with some of that false religion in the world. What are people truly believing now? And what do, what do they need to be converted for? What do they need to reject in order for the clear gospel of Jesus Christ? We are also to watch the trends of the world within the church. We are to guard and protect the church. We are to be vigilant within the walls of the church. From what? Look at verse 13. Watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. It says avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, in this text, we do not have any indication here that there were currently false teachers. And I want to say a couple things. The word, the term false teacher is the descriptor. Divider or causing division is what they do. And wolf is really their character. So I think what you see in scripture is those words are all synonymous. Um, it often involves a false idea of teaching. So I'm going to use those words synonymously today. Uh, I mean, the term here would be divider, but we're really talking about false teachers, those who teach falsely. And we see other passages of scripture that give a similar type warning, a similar type pattern. Um, so we do not have an indication here that Paul knew anything that they didn't know. Like he's not saying, look, there's somebody in other books. He actually names false teachers. Look, that person did me great harm. They're coming to your church. Avoid them. Here, Paul, it's more like this. It's a preemptive strike against false teachers. I want to say this. False teachers do not come into weak or ungodly churches. Places that are full of, 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 of rampant sin or ungodliness are churches that just are, are, are you know, as, 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 as light as... Light is toast. You know, they, they don't teach anything, right? They're not a threat to Satan. You know, the, the big, the places that just, you know, they have it as light and fluffy as you possibly can make people feel as good as possible, right? They, false teachers don't come there. They're, they're already full of false teaching, right? But Satan would send his minions, would send his dividers into good churches, into faithful churches. And to this end, I think we need to, to take a warning here. Paul is saying, he's already said, look, this is a church, that is a good and faithful church, this church in Rome, in spite of the fact that they're in the middle of the eternal city, the, the, the city of Rome, the, 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 you know, the paragon not only of this Roman empire, the capital city, but also all the pantheon of gods. They are a church that is mixed in ethnicity. they got Jews and Gentiles, and they're working all that out. And yet, Paul knows that they, he has heard reports. They are a faithful church. In fact, we see that in verse 19. Their obedience is known to all. 
So what's he doing here is he's doing often what you might do if you were in, you know, you were a city that was going to come under attack and your city might be besieged in war. You know that uh, you've seen in the movies, you've read in the books that if a city knows the foreign army is coming and they're just waiting until the army comes, they do a bunch of things to get ready. They make it really hard to besiege the city. They may build up some ramparts. They may bring in stores. Uh, maybe they go to the neighboring towns and they empty them all out. Make sure that the, the foreign army that's going to come and besiege their city doesn't have any supplies. They may, if there's obstacles near the city, like trees, they may chop down the trees so the army, the foreign army can't send, you know, archers into the, uh, into the ramp, into the branches and shoot down on the walls. They may burn the outer villages. Right? What are they doing? It's, it's a preemptive strike. We see that in the Old Testament, right? When, um, the city of Jerusalem was under siege from the foreign empires. Hezekiah built a water tunnel underneath that still exists today. They found it about a hundred years ago. An amazing thing. And they knew they were going to be besieged, so they built this water aqueduct underwater, this tunnel, so that they would not lose water. Okay? That's just wisdom. It's called preemptive strikes. You make it hard for your enemy to defeat you. They may be stronger than you, but you're not going to make it easy for them. Well, this way... And you may even survive. Well, listen, we know that the church is going to survive, but it's not going to survive without the effort of uh, the soberness that's required. It's not going to survive by just pretending everything's going to be okay all the time. We celebrate peace in the church, but we know that peace is something that must be fought for. And we must be vigilant against. Again, we don't know who the false teachers are. Paul does not name them. And I think, I, I suspect that's deliberate. He doesn't want them to just say, well, you know, here's the one bad false religion out there. So good. Well, we don't do that. No, he's trying to give a pattern. Look, there, there, there's, a, there's an MO. There's an operating system to all of these dividers. And if you can just recognize this, you won't be the type of naive person that they are willfully trying to pull away. We are not to be naive. Naivety here is not a badge of honor. It's not, well, I just have a simple faith, and you know, I don't want to think about all the bad things in the world, and I don't want to be discerning, and, you know, I just want to, just me and Jesus and love Jesus. I mean, you hear that all the time. I just, I, you know, I like my Hallmark card Christianity, right? I mean, that's the culture we live in today, right? And then all of a sudden, three years ago hits, and churches shut down and bow to wokeism and all these other things, because up to that point, you could just kind of get along to get along. All of a sudden, the moment the government threats a little bit, everybody shuts down forever, right? That's naivety at best. Something else at worst. But the Bible says here, and I look back and go, man, you know, in some ways we should have been better prepared. In some ways, well, we just had to, we, we had to face some things in real time. Well, I know now, three years later, we will not be naive again in any way. And no church has... You know, we have the obligation to recognize what's going on in the culture. Well, in the same way here, we are not to be naive people. Look, it says in verse 18, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Naivety in this, it's not a commendation from the Lord. It's actually a dangerous place to be. And now, I want you to recognize this. Not every Christian, there are certainly different gifts and, and all those things. And, you know, you may not be a person who naturally is going to be the warrior who goes out there and, like, reads all the all the articles about all the bad teaching out there. I mean, there is a job of which the elders of the church are to do, the men of the church are to do, but the women are also to be discerning. You know, we want our children to be discerning. We, we teach our children, look, if a stranger offers you candy, 
you know, and, and they have a black car and they, they come up to the door. You don't go and get in their car, right? We, we, we want our children to not be naive about stoplights and, and where you cross the street and, and the dangers of certain things in our culture today. That's just wisdom as parents. You want them to recognize a stove with the burners turned on. Don't touch that. It's hot. Okay? And it's just say, well, I'm just going to be naive about it. No, you don't act like that in your own life. And the Bible says in the same thing spiritually. We are not to be naive people. So here, um, we recognize that there is real power in the church. And the church is attractive to people. There's a unified group of people. There are people who are warm, genuine, and attentive. A Christian church is a place that there should be love and genuine affection. Right? We don't come in with our guards up every time. No, we're a place where we let our guards down. We, and it should be that way. And to that end, this also attracts divisive people. Here, a type of wolf, a self-appointed teacher. So I want to hit two parts to this sermon. The first part is describing the divider of the false teacher. Three words, motives, methods, and the material teaching of false teachers. So I think what you see here in Scripture is a pattern in these two verses that you really see throughout the rest of Scripture. Almost every passage that talks about a divisive person, it follows the same MO here. Now the first thing we want to get to that Paul hits at is motives. Why do they do what they do? Now we might say in a culture like we live in today, you know, kind of this therapeutic world that we live in where, you know, the worst thing you could do is to judge somebody or to question somebody's motives. I mean, we might say, well... You know, somebody, they, they teach wrongly. Like we see those people on Christian television that are just, you know, doing this signs and wonders and name it and claim it with their, all their gaudiness. And we hear of the warnings of these, the, the, these people have gone down all these different rabbit holes of teaching. And we might say, well, they really mean well, don't they? I mean, they, they love Jesus. You know, I still hear people say, we, we, we have a hard time saying about, you know, even like a guy like an Andy Stanley now, who is a well-known guy who's just fallen into some serious apostasy. I still hear Christians, and I think it's just the, the nature of being a Christian is we want to still say, well, they must really mean well. They must really still love Jesus. We don't want to say the reality. Um, we want to believe they have good motives. Maybe they're just merely confused. I mean, we're all on a journey. You can't judge the heart. You can't judge the motives. You ever heard statements like that? You ever made statements like that? Of course we have. We can't judge the heart. We can't question somebody's motives. Well, Paul does. And Jesus did. Particularly in this circumstance. And notice he doesn't shy away about this. So the first part is the motives, the verdict. Here's what he says. Do they love Jesus? Are they serving Christ? No, he says. They are not serving, but they are using Christ's name to serve themselves. If a fundamental mark of a Christian is a renewed mind, and only a Christian has a renewed mind, they serve something, but they don't think with their minds. Notice what he says here. They serve something, but they serve themselves. Here it's called, they serve their own appetites. Philippians 3.19, a parallel passage says, their God is their belly. In 2 Timothy it says, they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, this is a description of an animal, right? You recognize your animals, they are trained to a certain degree, but generally they're trained by food. They live for the immediate gratification of what they can eat or what they can lick or whatever else an animal likes to do, right? 
Now, the Bible actually says that in our unsaved, unregenerate condition, ironically, we are described like an animal. When sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, they began by listening to their hearts, not by obeying God. And they, there's a reason why it was the fruit of a tree. It looked good to the taste. The Bible says the pattern of all humanity since then is ultimately what motivates us as ourself and what motivates us is our feelings, what feels good, or here, our appetites. This is a description I said of an animal, but it's also a description of a total depravity, meaning this, human beings are still in the image of God, but the nature of unbelief, of the, of, of the way in which you are born is you serve yourself, you serve your appetites. This is not hard to understand. Our children <laughs> are born serving their appetites. They need discipline in order to not serve their appetites and not hit their brother when they don't get their way. Not through a tantrum when, you know, they're told you can't have this for food or you have to eat this or you have to have good manners or something like that, right? You get this, right? Children left to their own, it is not, they would not make a good society, but undisciplined children make a Lord of the Rings or a Lord of the Flies society, right? They, 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 they would destroy each other. False teachers and dividers are like that, but they're in adult bodies. They are not Christians. They serve the God of self. They do not serve King Jesus or his good news. They are self-absorbed and they use others in their self-absorbedness. Now, I want to say this. We're we're hitting this in the order that the text hits, okay? We're going to get to what actually types of false teaching are they, might they be teaching, But first we hit the motives. Now the second is their methods. How do they operate? They work not in clear truth. Remember the Apostle Paul? Jesus, the pattern we get in Scripture is from the pulpit to one another. We are to be speakers of truth. Now there's wisdom in how we speak the truth, but we give clear, unadulterated truth. Be reconciled to God. There's a heaven and there's a hell, and unless you are born again, you will go to hell, and it's a just Punishment for your sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago to make a way to save sinners and to bring restoration to the cosmos. We serve a message. We serve it with truth. We don't lie to each other. You may not like it, but we are required to say it anyway. False teachers don't work in the truth. They work in deceit. Usually, I think we think about, and the movies show us this. I mean, you know, if you've watched maybe a Christian movie about, you know, like a, a false teacher, I was thinking that, oh man, I can't remember, I'm forgetting it now, but you know, you get this idea, it's this fomenting college professor atheist who looks like, you know, he wants to beat you up, and he's just this big, scary guy, or he's like, you know, a monster who shows up on Halloween with a red horn and a cape, right? And you go, ah, that's a false teacher, and he's kind of intimidating anyway, right? It's, you know, this... You think about this, you know, this this person with a bully pulpit. And they're kind of unlikable anyway. They're real scary and intimidating anyway. Actually, generally speaking, the false teachers are not that way. They could be. But it doesn't describe them here. How does it describe them? They're often nice sounding. Here, one of their methods is smooth talk. Actually, those are the ones that concern me the most are not the bully pulpit atheists who you see out there in the culture, but it's the 
you know, the therapeutic types, the social work types, the ones that really are compassionate and make you feel good and, 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 and draw you away. In fact, that's what we see here, right? By smooth talk and flattery. They use tears and empathetic language to manipulate. When cr- confronted, they point to their works or they blame shift. They always cry that they are misunderstood. I think one of our, I mean, you think about, in some ways, that was often the method of our former President Obama, wasn't it? I've heard him called the most divisive man in American history, and that might be an overstatement, but if you remember him, and the type of ways in which, especially his second term, how he gained power, it was, he was an incredibly smooth talker. He was a great communicator, but he was also the master of dividing one group to another. Right? You remember that? He, you know, first term, it was all about, you know, government and helping the American people. Second term, it was all about blaming white people, blaming a different race. And he, he did this incredible, he was incredibly effective at making some people feel empowered and other people feel the victim, while at the same time maintaining a plausible deniability. Well, I didn't really say that. I'm just asking the question, you know. Uh, he continues to do that. He's an incredibly divisive man. But he does it in a way that he's a very smooth. He's a great communicator. You know, um, you know, last president, President Trump, you kind of just know what he thought all the time. With President Obama, you know, he had an agenda to get, and it was an agenda of power, but he used these type of smooth talk methods and victim blaming and victim shifting to tell you what you wanted to hear. They use flattery, it says. Gossip is saying something behind your back I would never say to your face. It's gossip. Saying something behind your back, I would never say to your face. Flattery is the opposite. Flattery is saying something to your face that I would never say to your back, behind your back. Okay? Get that? Ken Hughes said that. Gossip is saying something behind your back you would never say, I would never say to your face. Flattery is saying something to your face I would never say behind your back. So it's telling you what you want to hear in order to gain power. This means they are dishonest people. They refuse to come into the light while thinking they know better than the light. They use people to feel better and assuage their own guilty consciences. When we begin Life Spring um, Church, it's interesting when you when you plant a church. Um, Fourteen years ago, when we started, um, and, and I've talked to other guys who have been the founding pastors of churches too. And you you know you tend to be you know America at least the world exists. Is, you know we don't come into an atheistic culture today where you know the vast majority of the people claim no faith. It's still it's a very spiritual culture still. And when we first began the church, we attracted a lot of people um, who we found out really quickly they just wanted to check out the next best thing. And in fact, some of them had real agendas. They saw us as, oh, you're a new church. You need leadership. You need my authority. And we had several very, very divisive people, including one cult leader, local cult leader, who tried to join our church. Um, But I remember the most divisive person I I think I've ever seen in ministry was this little old lady, and I found out from talking to other pastors that she had done this in several other places. And she came in and she would tell people, oh, you know, I just, I just am misunderstood. I just, you know, nobody ever wants to use my gifts. And she talked to me once and we found out her gifts. So she, has a, she was a self-proclaimed prophetess. And she wanted the pulpit really on the next Sunday. And I said, well, it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know? One, uh, we don't allow, 
women or you or anybody really to get up and say, I don't allow men to get up and just say prophecies. If you want, do you have something you want to say? Why don't you tell me? Well, I can't tell you that. I, I need to stand up and say it. I said, she asked me, and she, she said this in a public meeting, well, will you allow me to use my gifts? I said, well, I tell you what, I wouldn't be doing my job if I allowed anybody to get up. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Nobody just comes in off the street and gets the pulpit here. But what we want to see is if what you mean is prophetic truth that's spoken, we do that through the preaching of the word, but that requires that you'd be a faithful person, you'd be a member, you'd, you'd be a person that is trustworthy, and if you're willing to do that, you know, there's probably time in prayer meetings where you might stand up and say an encouraging word to somebody else. We've certainly had, you know, done those sort of things. But we don't, what we mean by that is small letter P prophecy. Well, she got real upset after that and um, tried to gather under a small group of people and she just telling them, oh, Pastor Eric, he just doesn't understand me. He just doesn't listen to me. Well, I end up talking to two other pastors like, oh yeah, we know who that is. They're like, you know what the prophetic word is? What? It's going to be something against you. That's what she always does. The moment she gets a, you know, any sort of public thing, she speaks against who's ever in charge, you know, whoever God has called to lead, and that's how she gathers around herself. Sweetest looking old lady. Incredibly divisive. Flattered. And then played the victim card as soon as she, you know, the moment I said, well, it's not that we wouldn't use your gifts, but we just, we have to wait. We don't just, that, that's not the way we operate here. Was the moment she was the victim. A moment I was about, see? See, you're just like everybody else, right? And that's that's hard to hear. And that can be incredibly divisive for people. People are like, well, yeah, maybe she's right. Maybe maybe the church, is, maybe all male pastors just are this way, yada, yada, yada. But my question for her is, and I told her, I said, are you willing to serve the church regardless of whether you get the platform? Are you willing to be a faithful member here without an agenda? And we'll see. I'm sure if you've got, if you can faithfully use your gifts, it may not be in public proclamation, but I'm sure God will use you. Maybe you're a good counselor. Maybe you're a person who has a really good way to communicate with people. Well, she didn't want to do that, right? They use people to feel better, to assuage their own guilty conscience. False teachers claim the Bible. They even teach from the Bible, but they are never clear with gospel application. What do they actually say definitively? They may know a lot, but they actually say very little. I heard that once described after we found out that Ravi Zacharias, if you remember Ravi Zacharias, well-known Christian apologist, we found out near the end of his death that he'd been living a double life for a number of years. It's proven true. And I remember one of the, and he was known as this great intellectual, and I remember one, one a friend of mine had written, he said, you know, over the years he said, I always thought Ravi was supposed to be this great gospel teacher, but I always remember coming away from listening to him preach and thinking, man, he said a lot, but he really didn't say anything at all. You felt like he was saying a lot of intellectual things, but he never made very clear application. And I think now as we look back at a lot of his teaching, especially the last few years, that's probably the verdict, right? There's not a clear application of truth. There's not a clear focus on Jesus Christ. There's a consistent focus on themselves or the emotion or the intellect or this new teaching. The question that, therefore, we need to ask people who would teach us, and the question maybe as you see different teachers that are out there in the culture, would say, what is the gospel? What do they believe the gospel is? Is there a clear gospel message? I, uh, Phil Johnson, John MacArthur's assistant, there was a well-known, um, well-known emergent pastor named, um, I'm forgetting his name, but... 
it, it, it doesn't matter his name, but there was a well-known um, emergent pastor about 15 years ago that had, had just gained a huge following. Erwin Ir- McManus was his name. Erwin McManus had gained a huge following. And uh, he was constantly gaining this following by kind of questioning all the other churches. Well, this, do they really do this? Do they really teach Jesus? Do they really understand the Old Testament? Do they really do this? And Phil Johnson put out a challenge. He said, let's listen to his sermons and ask yourself, does he ever articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has he ever just come and say, here is what you must do to be saved. Here's what Jesus Christ did. And they did an evaluation of all his sermons. They could not find a spot where he ever definitively, clearly just said, this is who Jesus is. This is the gospel. See, I think First John is... I think 1 John is literal when it says that. No one can confess Christ except him who knows Christ. That's the question. Do they confess Jesus definitively or is there always like a, well, we don't really understand. We don't really understand much about him. It's a complicated question, yada, yada, yada. Do they have a story of repentance? They may talk about themselves and, you know, I'm misunderstood, but where have they actually changed? Where have they said, here's where I've sinned and I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. Here's where God has grown me. And then finally, do they hate and despise the local church? This is why church membership is so important. If you won't serve in normal areas, you're not going to get a pulpit. <laughs> you're not going to get a teaching spot. Be a regular person. Serve. Show up. So that's, second, their methods. They're flatters. They're gossips. Third, their material. What are they actually peddling? Now, I want to go through here just a list and just a a summary of a a number of types of false teachings. And again, remember, when we talk about false teaching, it's never a teaching that would say, I deny the Bible exists. They talk a lot about the Bible. But what they do is they don't talk about sound doctrine. They deny sound doctrine. They deny the message of the Bible. So they talk a lot of Christianese, but they use Christianese to move us away from the gospel and towards themselves. Okay? False teaching is always one of two things. It's always behavior-oriented. It's always libertine or it's legalistic. Remember those two words, libertine or legalistic, meaning this. Libertine, there's no law at all. You can do whatever you want. You can um, commit sins. You can have sex out of marriage as long as, you know, someday you ask for forgiveness. But there is no standard, right? There's no law of God. God doesn't really judge. He really cares about you. He's, you know, the Ten Commandments are just ten suggestions. They're not ten commandments of the Lord, but God is not holy. Your feelings are holy. So that's libertine, right? They're always peddling some sense of, uh, nowadays, you know, it's, it's some sex, some sense even of the homosexual agenda or something like that, right? You really can continue to act this way as long as you claim the name of Jesus, right? So repentance is not required. So libertine, or the other is legalistic. If liberty means there's no law, legalistic is only law or new laws and codes. So I just think about this. I just want to go through a few summaries of some false ideas or false teachings that have infiltrated the church in the last 60 years or so. First is the feminist movement, right? Feminist movement is libertine, right? Genesis 1 and 2 has no moral authority. Men and women are not different through creation. They're not different in design to complement each other. Men are not meant to be leaders, but it's all egalitarian. It's all the same. That means, to a certain degree, if, if that is true, then you can kind of make up your own way. Whatever the culture says. That's why the feminist movement has led to no-fault divorce, abortion, 
sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, and, and, and the list goes on and on. It all began with the whole denial that God's word is normative. So that's a liberty. You can live how you want. The church growth movement of the last 50 years was divisive in that it pitted sound doctrine against new methods. Remember often how the church growth gurus said, well, you know, you churches that are not growing, it's because your sermons are long. It's because your worship is boring. You're singing from the hymnal. Here are the new methods. If we want to reach people from outside the church, we've got to change the church from the inside. And often it wasn't just about, let's, you know, let's repaint the sanctuary, make it look inviting, do new carpet. You know, those are good things to do. But it meant, look, the culture doesn't want to put up with long sermons, so make it sermonettes. The culture doesn't want to hear about hard truths, so let's not address certain issues from that. We'll wait until we can disciple people and then address hard issues. We would never want anyone to reject us. The Bible says people already do reject the church because they reject Christ. They need to be converted. So we preach and we expect we'd have people who are not Christians here. Maybe that's you today. But I tell you, if you're feeling uncomfortable and confronted, you need to say, is that me just doing that or is that God's truth? Turn to the living God. Repent of your sins. Don't be naive anymore. Maybe you've been fed, you believed a bunch of lies. Don't believe that anymore. Turn to the Lord. The church growth movement was libertine and that it went away from the standards of God's word, but it was also legalistic. If you notice, it had, it replaced all of the old God's norms and standards with all kinds of new laws of church growth. And all the churches that followed that, they would go from one idea to the next, one big event to the next big event. All kinds of new guaranteed successful methods. If you'd only do this type of, of, uh, of sermon series, if you'd only decorate your sanctuary this way, if you do this dance show in your, in your service, or whatever else it is. The therapeutic movement. The psychologized man. We see that going along with the feminist movement, where all of a sudden it's the rise and triumph of the modern self. God is no longer a holy judge. He is your divine therapist. Who wants you to feel good and discover the inner good. That is libertine. You can live however you want because God understands you. How about the social justice, the woke movement that we've seen just on fire in the last 10 years, right? In some ways, the woke movement, it would be divisive false teaching 101, exhibit A. It doesn't create anything. The whole way in which it operates is by dividing people working on jealousy and covetousness, creating standards of injustice that may never have existed. It doesn't create a new church. It can create nothing. It just takes over existing churches. It's a virus. The nature of it is division. Men and women are divided. Did you know that you would just be happy if men wouldn't act like, you know, the masculine goats that they are? Did you know that you would be happy if the white people would just give to the black people if the black people would understand their, 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 the nature of their victimhood. The young and the old. The gay and the straight. Whatever else you want to do, it divides people. It stirs up division because the whole idea is, look, there are problems in our society. It has a sin code, but the problems are outside of you. They're in different groups. And if that group would just change, then you would be happy, Right? And you can have the power. It's the power in the victim class. I mean, I think about like a guy like Colin Kaepernick, right? A average 
NFL quarterback at best, maybe, in a couple good years. I mean, he's become the woke high priest. He's done nothing. He stands for nothing other than division. And they paid him a ton of money to do that. What, what has he ever built? He's built nothing. He's the, the, the spokesperson. He's the guy that kneeled at the flags a few years ago, right? He was the one that really made that the big deal, kneeled at the national anthem. The irony is that he grew up in a pretty privileged household himself. Yet he's figured out a way to get power and influence. But interestingly enough, it, in some ways, this is, a, this is a very legalistic system. It's got a whole new form of sacraments and law codes that you have to obey. A whole number of virtues that you need to signal. Right? And, and the list goes on and on and on. It's similar to a system of works righteousness. A kind of a King James only type view or something else where there's all these different ways in order to be holy. All these different ways in order to be set apart. And all these different ways in order to feel like you are not compromised. There's also, in all these false teachings, there's what we call a Gnostic flair. What we mean by Gnostic is the idea of new knowledge or new teaching. False teacher always has some new knowledge for some heightened spirituality of perfect peace today. Here's a good sign for you. Whenever you see or hear a teacher or a book say, we've discovered something new in the 21st century about your spirituality, or the church never taught you this, I bet, right? That's always a red flag. Just just keep your feelers up whenever you see that, right? You see this with end times fervor today. Like there's all these signs and wonders, you know. Whatever is going on today must mean that we're near the end. You see this with the emergent church. Remember the prayer of Jabez 20 years ago? A couple of you do, right? I mean, that was the latest, greatest craze that all you Christians, if you weren't happy because there was that one verse in the Old Testament, if you just start praying it, then all of a sudden you would, you would have prosperity. You'd have happiness. We saw the heavenly tourism books 15 years ago. Remember that? The boy who went to heaven and heaven is for real and all those ones. It was this whole, you know, these, 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 these claims of five-year-old kids that they had seen Jesus. And you just read these books, you would, you, you would know about heaven. You'd feel closer to God. They had this idea of, 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 look, something's missing in your life. And we have this prophecy or we've got this thing. And if you would find this, all of that discomfort, all of that difficulty... Uh, would go away. You'd be happy. You'd grow quickly. The Bible says you grow through the normal means of grace. And it's in the midst of difficulty. And it will be hard. And hard things are difficult. And um, difficult people, and, and, and there is disappointments in our life. And there's no way to avoid that. In fact, to be a Christian is to be persecuted. It is to go into the battlefield. The new diet fads. seems like every year there's some new diet fad that somehow mixes look if you would just take this diet not only will you be physically healthy it might be a very good thing for you to do but this will be a secret to your spiritual success we've seen an increase in this yoga movement this holy yoga movement which is just the idea that you know if you do these certain exercises there be spiritual power invested by nature of those things it's it's hinduism right not christianity right there's real spiritual power but it comes through word and prayer and you and exercise is a good thing but you can't, you, can't, you can't mix and match those things. Like the Bible warns against that. But again, why are they so popular? Because they promise, look, there's something that's missing out there between heaven and earth. There's a way to not feel sad anymore. We've seen Enneagrams and other personality profiles. 
right? If you would just understand your personality, then you'd be the person you're supposed to be. We've seen, you know, if you would just remove red dye, then your, your behavior would improve. You wouldn't, you know, without any reference to repentance here. We've seen revivalism, signs and wonders. Go to this awakening event and then you will be spiritually happy. Now what's the point? Why do we warn against these things? Because it says here, Paul says, the goal, what they can do is, in verse 18, with smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They create obstacles. They barnacle the true Christian's heart and they give false assurance to the non-Christian that they really are Christian. So meaning this, they create barnacles on the heart of the true Christian. They would love to lead you down a path where you don't have assurance in the Lord, where you're not effective in serving the Lord, where you're vulnerable to any number of other sins. They fixate on one aspect of the faith while they simultaneously sow seeds of doubt on church leadership and their motives. And it's always true that these dividers refuse to believe good old sound doctrine. So that's part one. Part two, much quicker, just a few minutes left. So what do we do? What's the truth? First and foremost, and there's a non-reducible application here, there is a truth to be found. False doctrine, false teachers always operate on the fact that they've got a secret truth that you don't know about and they will tell you if you listen to them or pay them. The Bible's clear to all. We call this perspectivalism, right? 90% of the Bible, you can read it and know it. Now, you need to be taught, and there are hard passages, but none of those hard passages actually contradict anything else. They just need better understanding of the genre they're in or the type of language that's there. But the, generally speaking, we believe that you can open the Scripture and prayerfully ask the Lord to help you to believe, and you can read the Bible for yourself and believe it. It is clear and true. And as we read the Bible, there's truth and the truth will unify, save, and assure. That's why Christians in another nation, another language, another geopolitical environment, a thousand years ago can read the same Bible and reach the same conclusions about doctrine as we do in the 21st century. We read those old confessions and say, yes, I believe that. That's how I would say it too. Maybe not in old English, but I'd say it in new English, right? Why? Because I read the Bible and I see the same thing. So friends, when you read the Bible, the Bible tells a story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, Genesis 3. And now we're going to hit the end of Genesis 3, an image of that in, this, in, in, in verse 20 here. But the Bible also gives a summary, meaning this. You get done reading the great story of the Bible, and there's a satisfying the end at the end of Revelation 21 and 22. Now go live happily ever after. But also, you get done reading the Bible and you realize, oh, there's a dictionary left on the counter. And this dictionary is the dictionary of sound doctrine. God actually tells us a lot of things in the Bible about truth and life and how to live and about himself and about the Trinity, about sin and about atonement. And there's a summary. We call these the doctrines of the faith. So in Sunday school today, we are studying doctrines, the basic doctrines of the faith. As we look at the Bible and we look back, we say, well, what do we learn about the atonement? How man is made right with God. That's what we're going to study today. Last week it was sin. We summarize all of Scripture. The good news, friends, is that doctrine is, as I've already said, it's simple and clear. Doctrine saves us because it forces us to turn to the living God. 
This is why false teachers hate true doctrine. Because true doctrine would mean I've got to deal with a holy God. False doctrine says I never have to deal with a holy God. God has to come, you know, come down to my holy feelings. But turning to a holy God and we see true doctrine, we have no excuse for our sin anymore. And yet in that there is also a glorious message of, of hope and eternal forgiveness and adoption. It's what Romans is all about, isn't it? But doctrine is crucial. Sound doctrine. We need to know the truth. We need to be protected by the truth. This is why we make a regular habit of reciting the creeds in public worship. This is why we teach through this dictionary. We we teach through the 1689 Confession regularly. We're doing bite-sized theology right now. Sunday morning, we during worship, we do books of the Bible. But during Sunday school, we almost always do something doctrinal, meaning summaries of the faith. We want you to have both. We want you to have the story of the Bible and also these the dictionary of the Bible. You can know both things. You can one interprets the other. It's, it's two things, both in the same. We also hold to the standards of the Second London Confession of Faith. Do you know that what we do as a church is not something that I came up with 15 years ago and we planted life spring? You don't want that. You don't want me to <laughs> you know, just open the Bible and go, well, this is what we're going to read, believe about everything. No, we, we, we rely upon the doctrines that other churches have believed as well. We use this old confession from 500, 400 years ago, which is really a summary of 1,600 years of church history, what they believe, the battles that were fought for us to understand the Trinity. The Trinity formulations were formulated, summarized 1,800 years ago. We still hold those today. We can look in the Bible and say that. Why? It, it's good. It's good to recognize, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel in the 21st century. And actually, we need to be very cautious to anybody who does want to reinvent the wheel. The church who refuses the creeds because they're old and, and refuses to look at history and doctrine of the church is foolish and foolish. They're foolish in the sense they have to reinvent the wheel, which is foolish because it's time-consuming if they are serious in this endeavor. I'm thankful we don't have to do that. That takes a lot of time. And you could be in real error, and that's the second part. They will be susceptible to any number of false teachings and more likely in the meantime, a lot of error, which is also foolish. So when we say sound doctrine, this is not something I invent or any of the people at church invent. We just say, look, we want to be faithful to the church. Now we need to look at Scripture and say, do our, the books we read, do they match up to Scripture? Scripture is our guide. But do they also help us to understand Scripture and interpret Scripture? Praise the Lord for this. Praise the Lord for these. False teachers do not model humility. Whenever you hear somebody, one of those guys say, well, I'm just a Bible guy. I don't need other books. I don't need, you know, creeds or confessions. It may be posited as a humble statement. It's almost never a humble statement. I'm just a Bible guy. I don't want to be just, I want to be a a sound doctrine guy. I want to obey the definitions handed down by the church. And I think that's actually humble. This means, friends, we are to, in summary, we are to judge and act, discern, mark, and avoid. If you obey God's word, you will be protected from dividers and false teaching and from being a divider yourself. And the church is a public place which should be known for obedience and discipline. This is why we practice and require covenant membership where all participate regularly. If you become a member here, it means you're here. It doesn't mean you don't ever go on vacation, but it means you're here, you participate. We know each other. We protect one another. We believe that the foundations of our Christian life, it happens on Sunday morning. Now, I hope you're in your word and praying and reading your Bible outside of this. But what we do is an 
is an irreducible minimum here Sunday morning, but it's also a meal that we offer. It's a meal of truth together from God's word. Jim Elif writes this, when you come into the church, you are joining a society with boundaries. A church is a society which judges its members. Failure to purge wicked people from the church is wicked disobedience, Elif writes. And he's right. You ever been in a church, an environment that has tolerated false teachers or dividers or, or, or wicked sin that's never dealt with? You know that it's only a matter of time before it really isn't much of a church anymore. It becomes just a highly glorified spiritual resource center where everybody knows things about everybody else, but sin has never been dealt with. They're, it's not, they're not happy places. They're suspicious places over time. This goes against the culture today, which says you never judge. No, the Bible says here you judge. The Bible also tells us where we're not to judge, but in this one we are to judge. Not only this, but look at this verse 19 and 20 as we draw to a conclusion. For your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. I want you to be as wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And this means we should, by implication, we should watch our complaining and any talk which breeds suspicion. And we should be wise, we should acknowledge there is evil and there are divisive people out there. Now, I hope they're rare. I hope with our membership we can kind of, you know, preemptively strike them at the door. But we just need to be warning that, and often it's not within the church, it's in the broader evangelical culture. There is a lot of divisiveness out there. There's a lot of false teaching out there. We are to refuse to be naive. We are to refuse to psychologize sin. We are to repent of making excuses for sin of others at the altar of empathy and tolerance. Okay, this is why psalm singing is so good, isn't it? All of a sudden you see this language in the scripture where God calls people stupid and you go, wow, you know, that's, that seems kind of uncouth today. Well, that's what the scripture says, right? It doesn't hold back. And finally, all of this is undergirded by Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So Paul after all these glorious 16, 1 through 16, and these greetings, now he has this little two-verse warning. And now he goes back to the truth, and he says, look, you won't have to, you don't have to be naive to false teachers. You can deal with them. You should deal with them. But you don't have to live your life in fear of them. You can live your life upwardly with hope in the Lord. So this is the time to watch and be watchful. But we know that soon and very soon, all evil will be crushed. The God of peace will crush Satan under his feet. But that's a reference to, it's the reference to the prophecy of Genesis 3, right? He will bruise the serpent. He will bruise his heel. False teachers force us to look inward and they manipulate guilt with never-ending doubts and all their special sacraments. False teachers always operate in the gray, in the dark, always focused on self. The truth here is clear, it's upward, it's forward, it's guaranteed. Notice where Paul at the end hits our gaze here, right? He says, look, look to the Lord. It is the gospel doctrine, it's the gospel story. God is on the move here. Paul gives us the bookends of the story of the gospel with the realization that Genesis 3 has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. We're in the already and the not yet. Sin has been dealt the decisive blow. Soon it will be eradicated. And the time of watchfulness and battle will be over. This means that the sound doctrine, the church, and the battles that we face are cosmic in scope and spiritual in nature. 
They must be fought, but they won't need to be fought forever. Christ will return, and may our churches, our obedience be known to all. May we be known as a place where we love one another. And we are long-suffering with one another, but we are intolerant of flagrant, flagrant, flagrant sins. Where we teach sound doctrine accurately and truly, and yet we have no tolerance for false teaching. That is love, and that is truth, and that is the hope that we have for now and for the future. The great divider will be destroyed, and here's what he says, under the feet of God, no, under the feet of the church, this will happen very soon. So when we face these trials, and we teach the truth, and when we fight against false teaching, we are actually doing a cosmic battle here, knowing that we are doing the Lord's will, and God will soon crush the great divider under our feet. It makes it worth it. So we end with a great hope again today. And this is how Romans continues to end. Every little section, there's a new benediction here, isn't it? God wants us to see something. We began Romans with the look at the world and the destruction of sin. And now we end recognizing that as Christians, that has been paid for and forgiven by Christ. And now our gaze is upward and forward and outward. So go into this week with great hope, my friends. Fight the necessary battles that we have to fight knowing that they are necessary. They are necessary for our faith and the faith of our children in the church. But they will not always be this way. There is an end of these things that God will bring about and he is bringing about in the present time very soon. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this glorious morning. Thank you for this glorious text. And Father, I pray that we would be sober-minded people who seek the truth. I pray, Father, that God, that today each person would come under the banner of the gospel, believing the gospel. Father, help us to repent of all our false ideas and false um, ways of thinking that sin really isn't that big of a deal or that we found some special way to make it right with you. Father, the, we are reminded of the gospel that we are right with you only because your son Jesus made a way for us. So I pray that you'd help us to believe with hope. Father, I thank you for this church and this people of God. And bless the rest of our time today. In your name, amen.